Our lesson for this second Sunday of Advent comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Hear now God's holy word. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you that you would prepare our hearts now by your spirit, that we might receive it, that we would hear it, that we would meditate on it in truth. Deliver us from everything that is not helpful today. Strengthen me as I prepare and I attempt to deliver these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. When I was five or six years old, my father took me to the very top floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago, which at that point was the largest building in the world. And I have a very clear memory of looking down from the observation deck of the top of the Sears Tower and seeing cars that appeared smaller than my matchbox cars, people who looked tinier than ants, and my dad pointing off to the north uh, where we lived on the north side of Chicago and saying, our house is somewhere over there. My house was a speck somewhere among all of the buildings and all of the structures off to the north on the horizon. And it struck me in that moment. It occurred to me that if those people and those cars look that tiny all the way down there, then when I get back down there, I'm going to look as tiny to the people up there. And therefore, if I'm tiny and our car is tiny, and our house is but a speck on the horizon, then I must be very small. My life must be microscopic in the grand scheme of things. It's the first time that occurred to me, and I had a little existential crisis on the elevator on the way down to the bottom floor. I have a similar feeling now. I, I, I have that same sense whenever I see a graphic illustration of planet Earth. You see these illustrations where Earth is compared to the size of the sun or to the size of Jupiter uh, or even to the scope of, of our solar system. And I try to wrap my mind around how Earth is just this dot in this great sea of emptiness of space where God has suspended our planet within his, his order of the universe. And yet this tiny dot, this tiny planet contains all of the history of humanity, all of the wars, all of the achievements, all the music, all the art, all of our stories and lives and comedies and tragedies all happened on this tiny speck on this world, which is so enormous from our perspective, but in the grand scheme and the scope of the universe is so tiny. 
In our lesson for the second Sunday of Advent, the prophet Isaiah makes several references to the scale of humanity in comparison to the almighty God of creation. He writes, as we just read, Isaiah writes, all flesh is like the grass which withers, but God and his word are eternal. There are all these comparisons to the fleeting nature of human life and the eternality of God. The smallest, uh, the smallness of human life and the infinitude of, of God and his strength. Uh, Isaiah says, God measures the untamed seas in the hollow of his hand. He measures the heavens with a span. A span in ancient measurements is the space from your thumb to your pinky. And God has measured the whole universe with just his hand, it says. Um, he, he calculates the dust of the earth and weighs the mountains and the hills. Isaiah says the nations are to him as a drop in the bucket and all are as tiny as dust on the scales. Isaiah goes on to say the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. The, the point of Isaiah chapter 40, one of, the, one of the themes of this chapter is that the Lord is infinite and we are finite. The strength of the Lord is without limits, and we are limited. The glory of God is that he is creator. The glory of man is that he is created. And the Lord tells Isaiah to comfort the people with these things. Now, how is any of this comforting? How is it, how is it comforting to know how small we are? How is this not demeaning? How is this not demoralizing? Well, if we think that smallness and if we think that, um, that, that, that being finite equates to worthlessness or if it equates to meaninglessness, uh, well, then that's just absolutely incorrect. It is the glory of man to know his creaturely limits and to trust in the limitlessness of God. This Advent, we are following the lessons from the lectionary week by week. Advent, of course, is the season of the church year, unique from Christmas. This, we're not in the Christmas season right now. We're in Advent. And Advent is the season where we reflect on all the ways that the Lord comes to us. He came to us in the incarnation. He will come to us in the final judgment. He comes to us week by week on the Lord's day by word and sacrament. Jesus reigns as king right now. He rules the nations, and so he comes to stir things up, to uh, lift up kings, and to take down other kings. He moves the nations, and he changes the world. And so during this season of the year, we, we reflect on all that the Bible has to say about all the ways that he comes to us and who he is. And during this time of year, we prepare our hearts to receive all of the ways that he comes to us. And this is also the time of year, obviously, where we are making preparations for that upcoming season of Christmas. We're making preparations for Christmas, a time of year where despite our desire to be jolly and festive, temptations abound in this, in this season. There are temptations to be impatient, to be frustrated, to be anxious. We have all kinds of opportunities to sin against each other. And so it's always wise in this time of year, knowing our vulnerability, aware of Satan's devices, that we put ourselves on guard. 
Uh, last week, we considered the sanctification that comes by patiently waiting on the Lord. We said last week, we, we grow feisty and discontent when people and situations aren't improving according to our schedule and conforming to our ideal of what they should become. But in the midst of that, we are called to obey, to do what we are responsible to do, and to wait, to wait on the Lord. This week, I want to continue on that same theme and to continue to chisel away at this discontent, fidgety restlessness that can permeate our lives. There is a worldly, beastly ingratitude that is at war constantly with our trust in God, and that ingratitude and that discontentment undermines faithful, patient, quiet, diligent obedience to God. And this ingratitude is often fed by unrealistic, unbiblical expectations for ourselves and others. And so by reading Isaiah 40, it, it brings our world into focus of who we are and who God is, who we are in our limited creaturely nature and who he is as God. So let's walk through for just a few minutes, let's walk through Isaiah 40 and get an understanding of the text, and then we'll unpack it with a few applications. He begins in verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Chapter 40 is a great turning point in the book of Isaiah. If you've ever read Isaiah uh, front to back, you know that Isaiah 40 is, is, is a sharp turn. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah contain some comfort, but mostly the message of Isaiah to this point has been a message of judgment and warning. Isaiah is ministering during the time of the divided kingdom, and Isaiah is ministering to the kings and the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, but this is during the time where the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is on its way out. Uh, this is, these are the very last days of the grossly idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel. And the previous three chapters of Isaiah are all about the end of the northern kingdom, the threat of the Assyrian empire whose armies swept through and conquered the northern kingdom and then came up right close to the gates of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Now, now, Hezekiah was a great reformer. He tore down the uh, shrines to the false gods. He tore down all of the idolatrous altars. Uh, Hezekiah humbled himself, and he cried out to God when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army. And God responded to the faithful prayers of King Hezekiah by sending his angel out into the camp of the Assyrian army and wiping them out. But still, this was a dire situation. The, the, the destruction of the northern kingdom was a stiff and sobering warning to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. How, how terrifying this whole series of events would have been. Imagine if our worst enemy had just conquered Canada and their armies had made it all the way to surround Washington, D.C., for example. If, if that had happened and, and then God delivered us from that, that would be a wake-up call and it was to Judah. And yet, the Lord wants his people in the kingdom, in the southern kingdom. He wants them to know now that he's pleased. He's pleased with Jerusalem, 
and he has heard their cries and he has granted them forgiveness. They have repented and he has forgiven them. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, uh, uh, Paul says that, that God is the God of all comfort. And we see that here. Now that there has been repentance and turning to the Lord, it is time for comfort. And so that's the first message. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. After this great tragedy, after this great, great and horrible experience, the next word that is delivered to Judah is comfort. Comfort my people. Verse two, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. She's received double. Double punishment? No, double forgiveness. The mercy has overwhelmed the guilt. God's grace is far greater than the extent of our sin. Where sin abounded, grace has much more abounded. So her warfare is ended. It's over for now. There are more battles to fight, but now it's time to prepare the way for the coming of Yahweh to them. And the next several centuries of their history and the next several centuries of world history are all about the world's being prepared for the coming of the king. Verse three, <coughs> the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Isaiah says, take comfort in this. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming to his people as a triumphant king. And the glory of Yahweh is going to be revealed in such a way that everyone is going to see it. So prepare the way before him so that he can travel to you in glory and ease. Take out of the way every obstacle to his coming. And that includes every idol, every false altar, every allegiance to anything and everything that is not under his reign. And as we heard in our gospel reading this morning, John the Baptist was that voice crying in the wilderness, that last prophet who cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of, of the Lord. And so this voice in the wilderness, what is it supposed to cry? What is the message that this voice heralds? The voice said, verse six, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Here's the message. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because of the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Wait a minute, I thought this was supposed to be a message of comfort. This sounds horrible that I am grass. Does that give you peace? Does that give you comfort to hear? Does that console you to hear that all flesh is as grass? That you and the glory of your life, your strength, your beauty, everything that makes you who you are as a human, all of that glory is fleeting that it's temporary. Does that console you? Does that make you happy? Is that what you want to hear? I don't think so, not necessarily. I want to hear that I'm smart and that I'm funny and that I'm incredibly attractive and that I'll never grow old and that I'll never lose my strength and my knees won't hurt and my back won't hurt. I want to hear those things. I, that's not, however, that's not the message that the voice in the wilderness trumpets out. That's not the message of Isaiah. He is not a humanistic cheerleader who says, 
everything's gonna work out for you and everything's gonna be fine and you're never gonna grow old. And by the way, you can do anything you put your mind to. Just put your mind to it and you can do anything that you wanna do forever and ever and ever. That is absolutely not the message of Isaiah. His message concerns the frailty, the weakness, the limitations of man. Isaiah, how is that helpful? You're not helping here, here brother. What, what are you saying? Well, it's because, it, here's how it's helpful. It's because God has promised to draw near to us in our weakness. Our weakness drives us to him. And because while human life is transient, God and his word are permanent. We are transient. God and his word are permanent. The very next verse, verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Nothing else in your life is permanent. Nothing else is gonna stay the same forever. You change and everything else around you is changing, but God's word never changes. It never becomes irrelevant. It never becomes less effective. It never becomes less authoritative. God's word never goes out of style. We do, we go out of style. You know, I've, I think I've got shirts in my closet from the 90s still. I, I think my wife would love me for me to throw them away. Um, but but I, I go out of style. We, we change, but you never outgrow the need to hear God's word and to be fed by his word and to be nourished by it because you don't stay the same. You always find new ways to sin and new errors to fixate on and new idols to create out of your heart. You change but God's word doesn't. And so the only stability in life, the only source of predictability is the Lord God and his word. And so you and I can rest among the fluctuations of life. We can rest in the solid, durable word of God. And so Isaiah spends the rest of this chapter contrasting the brevity, the transience, the limitations of man and his life with, he contrasts that with the majesty and the glory and the eternality of God. And this separation between our weakness and his strength drives us like sheep to the shepherd. Verse 11, he says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, which means we are dependent. Our lives are contingent upon his kindness and gentleness. And then, and then God speaks in a way that reminds us of, of God's discourse with Job. Remember when he asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, who, who determined its measurements? Well, Isaiah uh, uh, is, is uh, speaking with the voice of the Lord in this very same way in verse 12. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh or has his counselor has taught him? Who's told God any, who's taught God anything? Where, who does God go to as a tutor or instructor? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket 
and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. We need to hear this and repeat it and absorb it because the general assumption is that all of the nations and all of their leaders and all the rulers of the world, they hold all the power and everything they do and everything they say is of such immense importance that there is no other authority above them. Therefore, they must be obeyed, they must be feared without question. But there were several empires in the world when Isaiah wrote these things, and which of those are still around today? Which of the kingdoms in existence when Isaiah wrote this, which of those are still around today? Where's Babylon? Where'd Babylon go? Where is Assyria? Where are the Medes and the, and the Persians? Um, you know, there's, there's a place called Egypt today that has no continuity with ancient Egypt. Um, so, so while all of these empires of the world were impressive and they were extensive and they had all this wealth and they had all this glory at one time, they've all been replaced and all that's left of them is ruins and artifacts in a museum. Despite all of their hubris and worldly wealth, God says the nations are as a drop in a bucket and all nations before him are as nothing, counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. All of the things and all of the people that we are tempted to put our trust in are not God. They are under God, and therefore we do not fear them. We do not grant them a greater role in our life than what God has assigned them. God has set the boundaries for their authority, and when God says their time is up, it's up. Verse 24, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall they take uh, their, their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. When God was finished with Assyria, when he was finished with Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, when he was finished, he blew them away and they dissolved like sandcastles. What makes us think that he won't do the same with any superpower or any empire today when he's determined that his purposes for them are finished? See, what we view is so mighty and is so long-lasting, the sovereign God of the universe says, I hold that in the palm of my hand, and when I'm done with it, it's done. When my purposes for it are finished, I blow it away. So what we have here in this chapter is a striking -like declaration of the limitations of mankind so that man knows his position in creation in relationship to God. Our limits, our creaturely human limits are not flaws, they're not accidents. Our limitations are not effects of the fall. Adam and Eve were created as man and woman in perfection. They weren't created as angels, they weren't created as superheroes, they were created as 
humans. And they, Adam and Eve, had limitations of knowledge. They were bound to space and time. They didn't have wings. They didn't have gills. They couldn't, they couldn't leap tall buildings in a single bound. They had human bodies that function like ours. And they were perfect, and they were complete, and they were whole according to God's design as man and woman. So, so our creatureliness is not something that is to be frustrating to us. It's not something that we are to chafe against. Or uh, our creatureliness, our, our embodied life is not something that we are ever going to be delivered from in an eternal sense. In the resurrection, we will have new bodies. Uh, so we're to be satisfied and content and even comforted by this. Because again, from the top, Isaiah says, these are words these are words of comfort. So how can I be fine with this? How can I be fine with being finite? How can I give God thanks for the limits of my humanity? Well, first, in order to do that, we have to clearly define who and what we are. And simply stated, we are not God. That seems like a given. That seems like we could all say absolutely, I understand that. But think about that for just a minute. Think about what that means. We are not God. We are created in God's image, and we share several of God's attributes. God has communicated many of his attributes to us. We love because God loves. We can be kind because God is kind. We can be creative because God is creative. Uh, we have his wisdom and his mercy and his patience. There are attributes of God that he has shared with us as his creatures. There are attributes, however, that he has not shared with us. God is omniscient. God knows everything. You don't know everything. God is omnipotent. You are not all powerful. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. You are not everywhere at once. God is infinite. You are finite. Your existence has a beginning point and your body will die. You are mortal. Now, God will raise you up again. He, he will give you eternal life. But your body, this body, has an endpoint. You are mortal. God is self-sufficient. He is independent, and he is autonomous. Your life is contingent, dependent, and conditional. Your life depends on resources outside yourself that you can't produce all by yourself. Your life does not originate from yourself. Your life is imparted to you and it comes from outside of you. So not only are you not omniscient, you are not omnipotent, you are not omnipresent, you are not infinite, you are not self-sufficient, neither is anybody else around you. No other human has been given some incommunicable attribute of God that he hasn't given you. God then does not require you, and this is critical, it's, God does not require you to be omniscient. He doesn't require you to be omnipotent or omnipresent or infinite or self-sufficient. You possess none of these attributes, and this pleases God. This is critical. This is so important for us to say out loud because we can easily develop unrealistic, unbiblical perspectives and expectations for ourselves and for others. We think we do know everything or that we should. We think that we should have unlimited, 
infinite strength and stamina and knowledge and power and presence. And then when you think that you ought to have these things and you come crashing into the reality that you don't, well, you can become frustrated with your creatureliness. Instead of resting in God's good and wise creation, instead of being comfortable in your own skin as the creature that God created you to be. So that's first. We have to just establish who are we? What, what are we? Well, we're, we're not God. We are not infinite. All of our faculties are finite. And then secondly, building on that, because God has made us who we are, we can say without any qualification, we don't need a footnote on this at all, we can say without qualification, it is good to be human. It is good that God has created us as we are, that we are not angels, that we are not spirit beings, that we are not these you know, clouds of pure radiant light that, that just exists as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a mind somewhere floating in space. We are thankful that God has made us humans, flesh and blood. It is good that God has made you a man. It is good that God has made you a woman. It is good. This is a good thing. By his holy and perfect will, he has given you the body he has given you, and with that has assigned you a role in the world. With your body, he has given you a job to do. He has equipped you for the job that he has called you to do. And there's unspeakable contentment in knowing and accepting and resting in that. On the other hand, there's nothing but a great deal of despair and futility in refusing and denying that truth. You will wear yourself out and you will waste your life in attempt to fight your, your creation. So as his creatures, again, it is good to be human. And that means it is good for us not to be all-knowing. It is, it is good. Why? Why is that good? How is, how is that not demeaning? It's good because God made us this way. Frequently, I, I hear people express guilt and regret over not knowing something that they think they should have known. I should have known that would happen. I should have known that it would went that way. I, I, I just should have known. There's some bit of information that if only I had it, I would have done something differently and things would most certainly have turned out differently had I known. Well, no, no, not being omniscient is not a sin. I know I've got a lot of negatives in there, but I want to say that very slowly. Not being omniscient is not a sin. God has not created you to be all-knowing. Not having all the information is not a sin. Even when you have all the information, you still don't know how to interpret it. You got to interpret it correctly, even if you have. We, we always think, if I just had more information, I'd figure all this out. Not, not all the time, no. Not knowing what someone else is thinking and not knowing what someone else is doing is not a sin. God has not given us all the answers to all the mysteries of the universe. There are all kinds of things that we might know had he chosen to reveal them to us but he hasn't revealed them to us. And also on top of that, he forbids divination. He forbids necromancy. He, he forbids sorcery. He forbids all these pursuits of secret knowledge by illicit means. And yet, nevertheless, without perfect knowledge, without universal knowledge, he still expects us to lead. 
He still expects us to take dominion. He still expects us to rule with the limited knowledge that we have without all the information. How is that fair? How is that fair? Well, because while we don't have all the answers, he does. He has them. And because our knowledge is limited, we are driven to his infallible eternal word to consume it, to meditate on it, to work it out, and to apply it through all the seasons of life. It is good that we are not all-knowing. And, and it is good for us to not be everywhere. It is good for us to not be all-powerful because God has made us this way and because this puts us in a position to grow up under the ordinary means of grace. He could have given us all superpowers, but he doesn't. Instead, how does he strengthen us? He strengthens us through trials and temptations and testing and wrestling. And the fact that we don't have all of these superpowers, the fact that God has given us limitations, you know what that means? It means that risk is unavoidable. Everything we do and every decision we make brings with it a degree of risk. Life is not safe. The world is not safe. We're always trying to bubble wrap the world and eliminate any degree of danger or risk. But the reality is all of our safety measures always come with their own unseen risks. They always come with unintended consequences. And, and so not believing and not understanding and not accepting our creatureliness, we, we retreat, retreat, retreat to safety. And God is calling us, actually, what you need to do is take some risk. You need to step out and live by faith. Taking measured, calculated risks is necessary if we're going to be faithful because the just shall live by faith. God's word doesn't say the just shall live by having all the answers. The, the Bible doesn't say the just shall live by having all the superpowers. That, that's not how the just live. The just live by faith. The, the just don't live by being able to see around corners and knowing what is happening before it happens. So the, because the just live by faith, um, there, 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 there are ways and times and decisions we have to make where we step out, take a risk, knowing that there's danger, but resting in, resting in God's strength. Because God is omnipotent, we don't have to be. Because God is omnipresent, we don't have to be. We trust in his power and his strength. Verse 27, Isaiah says, "'Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, "'my way is hidden from Yahweh, "'and my just claim is passed over by my God? "'Have you not known, have you not heard, "'the everlasting God, Yahweh, "'the creator of the ends of the earth, "'neither faints nor is weary. "'His understanding is unsearchable. "'He gives power to the weak, "'and to those who have no might, "'he increases strength. "'It is good that we are not autonomous. It is good that we are not self-sufficient because in our dependence, we are driven to communion and peace with God. Our limitations mean that we are dependent on him for rest, for food, for drink, for oxygen, for warmth, for shelter. All these good gifts come from him and it is farcical, it is nonsensical to pretend like you are independent or that you can be or that you should be entirely. We do not have unlimited resources of time or strength. That means everything we do has trade-offs. The fact that I do this means that I'm not doing that. The fact that I spend my energies over here means that I cannot. I just simply cannot spend my energies over here. Everything, 
everything has trade-offs and it's quite silly to think that we can do everything and that we can be everything. So we are limited, we are dependent, we are finite creatures. That's how God created us and that is good. But the third thing to take notice of, very quickly, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, but this, very quickly, the third thing to take notice of is that these creaturely limitations are in the enemy's crosshairs. Satan knows our limits as well and will attempt to exploit our limits to make us believe that our limits are defects, that we should be like God in all these ways, and because we aren't, then we must be guilty of some undefinable nebulous thing. You're guilty of something out, uh, that you can't define, or that we're defective in our creatureliness, or that God has made a horrible mistake, that, that God is terribly unfair, and that we must hold him in contempt the way that Satan uh, tempted Eve to hold God in contempt. Is God trying to keep something from you, Eve? Satan exploits our limits and, and uses them to tempt us to fear and anxiety and worry. Here, this is the voice of the accuser. This is what we hear. What? What? You aren't omniscient? You don't know everything? Well, then, well, then you should fret all the time about things you don't know. You should make up things to fill up the gaps of your knowledge. You should create new things to worry about because you don't know everything. There are things that you should know and you should worry all the time about the things you don't know. What, what you aren't omnipotent? You aren't all powerful? Then you really should worry all the time. You should fear everything that is bigger than you. You should fear everything that is more powerful than you. Everything that is outside of your ability to manipulate, to craft, to shape, everything you can't control ought to be a source of constant worry, fear, and anxiety. You aren't omnipresent? Well, well, then you should be super anxious about what's going on when you're not around. You should be, you should be worried about what's being said, what's being done, what incorrect ideas are propagated that you can't correct. I mean, there's somebody right now somewhere on a computer typing something into the internet that's false and you're not there to correct them. That, that, that's, that is nightmarish, right? You aren't independent? What, you aren't independent? Then you should fixate on everything that you need. You should worry about food and clothing and how you're gonna pay for stuff the next time the world falls apart. How much do you need? A little more, you just need a little more, a little more than what you have. And when you get that, how much do you, well, you just need a little more, just a little more. See, these are, this is the voice of the accuser. We're vulnerable to these lies if we're not content in our humanity and resting in God's good and faithful, infinite fathering of us, his good shepherding of us as his, as his sheep. But if we're wise to these tactics, then we identify the game and we just refuse to play it. And instead, we follow our limits to the place that they're designed to lead us. Why has God set these boundaries for us? The apostle Paul answers this in Acts 17. When he preaches in Athens, Paul says, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Why? Why has he given them these boundaries? So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far 
from each one of us. God has built weakness into mankind. God has put limits into us in order that we would seek and find his strength. God has designed our limitations in order that we would find our peace and life and rest, not in ourselves, but in him alone. The very end of this chapter, the last two verses, verse 30, even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The finite is created to desire the infinite. In our weakness, we crave the fellowship of the one who never tires, who never wears out. In our dependence, we lift up our eyes and we look above our limitations to seek the fatherly care of the one who lacks nothing. We are like grass. He is not. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. His glory is all of the water in all of the seas and oceans. The only way to be truly human is to rest in and to be grateful for all of the limits of being human. If, if age and sickness have not already made you acutely aware of your finite nature, if it hasn't already, it's coming. It just, it's coming. And, and on those days that you're laboring under the limits of your body, don't gripe, don't be discontent, don't fear, don't get agitated, be grateful, give thanks for the body and the life God has given you and for the time that he's given you to live in it. The job he has called you to do, be grateful for that. We can do this because we have a heavenly father we have a father who knows our frame. He knows our frame because he designed it. He knows our frame because he sent his son to bear our frame so that he can sympathize with our limits and sympathize with our weakness. And because of his death and resurrection, our grass-like lives are not empty and meaningless. Because Jesus took on human flesh, flesh is full of weight and glory. Humanity is redeemed by the Lord Jesus who knows that we are finite. Because his father created us to be finite, Jesus lived in a finite body and his death and his resurrection redeems our finite lives. If we would just grab a hold of this, we would find that it would level all worldly pride. Understanding who we are as creatures is the graveyard of arrogance, right? it, That's where arrogance dies in knowing where we, where we are. We would have our hope and our confidence strengthened in Christ alone, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And we would direct all of our desires and all of our cries of want, we would direct those not to other finite creatures, but to our infinite heavenly Father. And so let every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our creation. We thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that you shore up our weakness with your strength. We thank you that you give glory to our limited existence. And we glory in this. We give thanks for these things that we are your people. You are the potter, we are the clay, and we rest in this. In Jesus' name, amen. And now let us continue to worship God by bringing his tithe and our offerings. 